Hello everyone, welcome back to the Open Bar Experience. I am your host, David Thackeray. I'm a hospitality professional with two decades of experience in bar and restaurants. My pursuit in this podcast is of having difficult conversations of our industry and of society as a whole. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Greg Perez, one of the owner-operators of Monkey's Tail here in Houston, Texas. If you're ever in Houston, check them out, look them up. I'll put their uh, information on the comment section. But he has created this place um, that has a feel almost like an ice house that is uh, has cocktails, but is got a latin flair southern latin flair like more of a mexican uh latin flair it's latino but it's got this southern this texas latino and uh very much mexican and which i love because in in my years here in houston and uh being in the east end in second ward you found these places that were very similar that had that feel that this uh, that monkey's tail has but it was a, an ice house and or what you might consider a dive bar, um, but not nowhere near as refined. And refined is too heavy of a word because it's still very comfortable in a neighborhood spot, but it is, it's a nice place to go to, right? And because what I have in mind is a type of place that is, it's, you know, you're lucky that the door and the, and the toilet closes type of place, you know? Um, no AC, you got, you know, those big old, you know, four by four fans that are blowing, uh, through the spot. So you don't die of the hundred degree weather that we get here in Texas during the summer. And this is nicer than that. Yeah. It's got garage doors and all that, but it's, uh, check out their IG, uh, their Instagram. So that way you, you'll see what I mean. So in this conversation with, uh, with Greg, we, uh, we talked about multiple things. One of them is how owners can do more for their employees if they're, they can do more if they're committed to it, if it's part of it. And, re, and the reality being that it helps owners and establishments whenever staff actually wants to go to work. There are times whenever environments are created in, in the workplace to where employees don't want to go to work and, and they don't feel happy there. And because it's a service, and it's so personal that there's no wonder why you get bad service in some of the places that you go to. And service complaints are so common. And oftentimes it has to do with the place, the way the place is managed. Um, managers sometimes are not at fault at that uh, because owners don't give them the tools that they need. Uh, sometimes it is bad management, but that's because the owner doesn't know how to hire a good manager. Um, these are things that I've talked about before, and it's nice to hear another owner-operator to to talk about these things so openly because they are important to the industry. And taking that step, and as he, as as Greg mentions, there's this new wave of um, owner-operators that came up from being bartenders and that put their time in the industry and now own their own places, and they run in an entirely different place entirely different way than a corporation does a corporation their commitment is to the shareholder 
laws have been passed in the last few decades to where the 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 best interest of the shareholder is the obligation of management of these publicly traded uh, corporations so small businesses that's where it's at frankly i think that the uh the burden of healthcare should be on the government because it is the health of the nation um, that they're uh, taking care of and therefore it would take that burden off of the shoulders of uh, business owners I'm, I'm a big proponent for that i think it's a great idea there is plenty of money that is being wasted on things that are unnecessary um, and one of those being giving subsidies and tax breaks to successful global uh, companies here in the United States uh, that are profitable and somehow they're getting you know they pay zero taxes and uh, and get subsidies so off my soapbox for a moment because in this episode I am going to talk about some other things uh, that have been going on in society and right now in the United States but globally right that affect all of us and have been a problem in the restaurant and bar industry. Right now, I have uh, Greg uh, Perez, which is a uh, owner-operator here in Houston, Texas, uh, a bar called Monkey's Tell. So um, I'm going to talk to Greg a little bit about that right now. So Greg, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited. My pleasure. so tell me a little bit about your experience in the industry. All right. Well, I'm fairly new to the industry. Um, I started in 2016, worked at Arthur Avenue with Sharif. Uh, you know, he owned Talent Great Food and Wine in Ranch Village. Uh, from there, I was there for about five months. Then went to Edison, moved up to bar manager. Uh, opened up Cayonte with the same ownership group from them. And from there, you know, just one thing led to another. And in 2019, we opened up Monkey Still. I have a coaching background. That was most of my early career. Once I graduated, I worked with the Texans a couple of years, and then I worked at HBU. So I'm fairly new to the industry compared to like everybody else that owns a bar or is an active operator. Really? So your your training in school is coaching? Or? Well, that's what I used to do. So I used to be an assistant coach at Houston Baptist University, which is right here on the south side by Sharp Town. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a smaller D1 school. Uh, that, that was what I wanted to do, going out of college, and then kind of got burnt out, uh, got let go, and then from there, just one thing led to another, I ended up in the industry. I feel like that's a story for a lot of us. <laughs> yeah, that's a fact. <laughs> so then, how, how whenever you guys were coming together with this uh, concept, what was the concept, what was the idea behind the concept, and uh, why the name Monkey's Tail? Alright, so the way it all started was there's this bar in Lindo Park. So quick about me, I, I grew up in that area. Uh, spent a lot of time there. I went to school in Garden Oaks. I mean in Oak Forest and Walters, but for most of my childhood it was Lindo Park Trinity Gardens area. And there was this bar there called Ike's Place. Old Tejano uh Tejano Ice House, you know, to serve beer, super popular. Uh, you know, people still talk about, you know, those years, 10 years ago when it was, everybody was there. And I remember my friend's parents going to that place too. So it was about 
I'd say 2018, uh, one of my regulars, he's cousins with the owner, and he said that I didn't want to run a bar anymore. He's older, he has kids, he wants to be more involved with his family, and you know the lifestyle of a bar owner is kind of hectic. Right. And so, and so he was looking for someone else uh, to give it to, but he wanted somebody that much, you know, to stay true to the neighborhood, because it is a traditionally Latino neighborhood right there, and yeah. uh, it still it still is, even though there's a lot of different people moving in. So he's been saying no to a lot of people, and so during this time, I was working on Calle Once, and so I didn't really pay much attention to it. I parted ways with Calle Once in September 2018, and uh, one of my regulars that now is my partner, Jesse Gonzalez. We had been talking about opening something together in the future. So I met up with our cousin Ike. We talked about it, talked about the rent, bought the property, and it just seemed like a good idea for a couple reasons. You know, uh, the big one for me, sentimental, is I grew up in the neighborhood. You know, like who wouldn't want to open a bar in their own neighborhood? <laughs> and so it was kind of those things that just made sense. Also, you know, it's up and coming area. A lot of young people are moving in. A lot of industry listening surrounding area you know it's just a good place and then there's nothing around it either it's very there's not a lot going on in that side of town so we decided to move in on it and then on november of 2018 we closed in on the on the lease agreement and we started to work and that's when we brought sharif who's my other partner there's three of us and he's the one that kind of helped us you know getting the permitting and the licensing and all this stuff since he already has experience with that and I already knew how the type of person he was when I worked for him at Arthur Avenue and so when we were talking about it we drew upon you know my experiences as a kid you know and which you know you being you know Latino también you kind of you can you know I don't know how you say it you know feel you kind of get it you know like the Spanglish we use in our menus you know that's how I grew up Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, everybody kind of has their own childhood memories and uh, and kind of like the flavor. Yeah, like you're saying, it's it's got the 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 feel. That place definitely has got the feel of this Latino uh, cocktail bar, but neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. Very neighborhood. Nothing like that in the city. You know, the you know Latinos, especially first gens, we're one of the biggest populations here in the U.S. Especially here in Houston and Texas. Yeah. And there's nothing that caters to us because, you know, quite frankly, no one knows how to cater to Latinos, if you notice. Everyone's trying to, but we're different. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was my goal, was to open something where I could feel comfortable, where I feel familiar, yet I can take people from different cultures and different backgrounds, and they would feel comfortable too, you know, because I wouldn't take them to an old Tejano Ice House because they would probably feel out of place, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. <laughs> And so that was the that was the driving force behind it. You know, our food menu draws on like my experiences as a kid. You know, as a kid, I didn't I didn't you know really like enchiladas and chiles rellenos and stuff like that. I wanted Domino's and pizza and stuff crust. I wanted McDonald's. <laughs> you know, now that we're older, it's the opposite. Now we're begging our you know our parents and our aunts and uncles to cook and barbecue and do all this other stuff. So it's kind of how you know. It's an expression of my childhood right there. Same with the drink. It's fun. It's flavorful. It's fruity. It's nothing too complex. You know, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel there. 
Yeah. And the vibe is just, you know, the vibe is just something that, you know, to me is, you know, can kind of personify what a first-gen Houston Latino is, you know? The music selection, the vibe, the decor, the service, you know? Because as we know, in Latino culture, we don't have to have the best of everything. It's all about the environment. It's all about the hospitality. You know, we can pop some corona and have the best times of our lives. We don't need to have, you know, a bottle of happy right. have a good time. No, that is true. I mean, it's a lot of really uh, family oriented. And so it doesn't take a whole lot to have a good time or, you know, to share whatever it is that, that you got going on. No, I, I love the fact that the, uh, the, the, the bar has that feel where it's a very much neighborhood bar. It uh, is very much a Houston bar because um, it, it's it draws on that on that Texan um sense but it, it's got the, the the latino flavor to it yeah and i feel like it's a new experience for a lot of people that didn't grow up in that environment because you know a lot of bars tend to be the same you know and we just want to offer something different and it worked you know we're pretty lucky and blessed <laughs> yeah yeah so you guys got best new bar from uh was it Culture Map or Eater? Eater. So Eater got his best new bar. We're nominated for the Tastemaker Awards for best bar. Uh, we got a top 10 regional from Tales of the Cocktail and a couple other stuff like that. So we've been very blessed, very fortunate. You know, our team, I got very lucky with my team that I have. They give me 100%. They, they're dedicated to their craft and they trust me and I trust them. You know, this is all them. I'm like, as you know, you from to the bar a couple times. I'm not behind the bar. You know, I'm not the one creating customers. Right. And so, then it's all to them. You know, it's, uh, if you take care of your employees, they will go to the end of the earth for you. That's what I'm really, really, really grateful we were giving 15, 16, when we were giving the order to bars and restaurants yeah. to close for uh, for dining. Um, you know what? What? How things have been since then? I mean, how, how have you? How, what you do to, for all of this? I mean, in part, all of us had to shut down and then try to do some sort of takeout as much as we could. But you're yeah. bar bar, right? But you have a kitchen. Well, here, here's the misconception that a lot of people have, and they've been running their mouth a little bit. Uh, we are a restaurant. We have our permitting. Our everything is restaurant. People don't realize how much food we sell just because we push drink, you know? Okay. you know, like, uh, our highest profit margin always comes from alcohol. You know, yeah. that's just restaurant. That's restaurant bar 101. That's why bars are so profitable. So it makes sense for us to push our, push our drink. Right. And so we have that restaurant license. So we are categorized as a restaurant legally, you know? It's not us, oh, we're a bar, but we have a kitchen and we're going to play the game. No, it's like legally, fire marshals have come, cops have come, we show some permits and it's been fine. You know, it's like seven times the fire marshal has come since we closed and every single time it's like, hey guys, we're just coming here because we had a complaint, but you guys are fine. And so, uh. right now, there's a big misconception in the industry that a lot of people think that we're just, you know, kind of being rogues. Like, no, legally, we are a restaurant. You know, our paperwork says a restaurant. And we consciously did that in the beginning 
because we anticipated the amount of food that we're gonna sell. Okay. And which we do, you know, like we sell we sell four dollar burgers and we sell an eighteen inch pizza for twelve dollars. Like you know, you don't realize the amount of takeout we sell as far as pizza sells. Shit. And so, and so yeah. So when we shut when the the orders came on the fifteenth, then it was for the seventeenth. But like sixteenth was our last day of service. It was a Monday night, so we automatically had to pivot to takeout, which it wasn't too bad. You know, we sell our food is you know takeout. Worthy, you know, it's pizza, you know. Domino's yeah. Pizza Hub, they'll have a whole model based on carry-out, takeout, and delivery. And so we started doing that. Uh, we were very fortunate. We didn't lay off any uh, employees. Anybody who wanted to take some time off, I told them, hey, if you want to take a vacation or you want to take unemployment, by all means. But if you want to stay and work, we're going to keep paying you. And a couple of them took uh, advantage of, you know, the slow time, and they took a couple weeks to recharge, which, you know, we all kind of needed this, needed this in this industry a little bit. Yeah, for real, <laughs> and, man. And we normally don't have the time for it. Exactly. So that's what I was telling them. Hey, take advantage of the slow time. Go out there, relax, concentrate on yourself, get your mind right. Because when this thing opens back up again, it's going to be hectic. Yeah. And so we just committed to take out. We did delivery. We had our employees... Uh, deliver within a certain radius, like mile, mile and a half. And uh, as we were doing this, we, you know, we thought, why not help out our community? I mean, bars weren't allowed to open at all, so every single bar tender, uh, bar back, buster didn't have a job, and so they don't have the help. You know, they didn't have the government assistance that we fortunately do have. Right. So we try to do our part and at least try to feed them, you know, like if there's one less meal they have to worry about, then, you know, let's do it. So that's when we started doing the employee meals for restaurant workers, uh, bar workers, and stuff like that. And our bar packs, you know, spread the word. So we actually fed a lot of these uh, support staff, which we were very fortunate. And obviously, you saw a lot of bartenders came in here, you know, gave them every day with something different, whether it was pizza, burger, chicken sandwich, whatnot. Yeah. And uh, it was a success, you know, uh, brands would buy about 30, 40 meals and we would give out about 100. So it was really cool to watch, you know, be able to do our part, even though everything was closed. You know, it just, you know, we're in an age where owners really need to be more conscious about society, about what's going on and putting our money where our mouth is. You know, we talk about how much we care about the employees, about how much we care about the industry. So... You know, we decided, hey, we got to do our part, even if it's just little. But, you know, 100 meals isn't much. You know, there's a lot more people that got laid off. And then, like, a couple days later, you saw more and more restaurants. So it was really cool that, you know, we were able to do that. And then other people were, like, following, too. You saw Backstreet start to do it. And it was awesome. Now people had options. Yeah, I, I know. Like, <laughs> I think that... I feel like between everybody, it was, like, like two or 3,000 meals a week, which is pretty dope to see. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, like you said, that that is a a, a population that gets forgotten um, because they get no benefits and they work extremely hard, and the entire restaurant and bar industry would just collapse without that 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 labor. Um, yeah. In the and I think that yeah, whenever I saw that, I thought it was really great. And you you know you say a hundred meals ain't much, and it may not seem like it, but I mean it makes a big difference to those hundred people. That's a hundred people, man. Exactly. And one meal that you don't have to worry about is uh, it's a big deal. 
Exactly. And so from there, you know, uh, our takeout was pretty steady. And then we, and then HIZ shut down the drive through meals because one of their workers had COVID. So we thought it was a great idea to find sponsors to sponsor meals at a bigger scale for our local community, especially our elementary schools. That's when we started doing our HIZ meal drives. Every Wednesday and Thursday, we'd hand out up to 900 to 1,000 meals a day just on that food drive from 12 to 3. And uh, like I said, you know, we all talk we all talk that talk about, you know, being involved in our community, about giving back and stuff, but these are the moments where true colors show. You know, you see the brands, you see the bars that let go of their staff, you see the brands that actually went out there and tried to do something, you see the bars that kept their staff and tried to pay them. You know, you see all these different things, and it just felt like our part, we have to do it. You know, it's like, it's time for a change. As we all know, this industry is plagued by ownership that just does not care. You know, like, you've experienced it, I've experienced it, everybody in this industry experienced the ownership that does not care about its employees, a group that does not care about its employees. Yeah. They're just there to make, yeah. they're just there to make a buck, and, you know, uh, it's time to set the example. So we were just trying to do our part. You know, we were trying to, like, you know, I talk a lot. I wanted to walk, you know, and so, and it was a great idea that our team had, you know, like, it wasn't me coming up with this stuff. It was, you know, my bartenders and our partners are like, hey, let's freaking do it. We can. We have the money for it. We've saved up. Like, why not? You know, the community supported us. Like, the bartending community came out and supported us constantly. Like, you guys are always in there spending money, drinking, having a good time, recommending people to come here. It would be foolish for me not to, like, be a helping hand when you guys are here. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that that you're you're right on on the 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 ownership the 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 way that they treat employees has to change because the restaurant and bar industry is such a a a personal thing right because it's service and if your staff feels good about showing up to work you're always gonna you you can feel comfortable in uh in that your guests are gonna be taken care of i think that is that that vicious cycle i've seen it so many times to where owners and managers complain about staff but they treat them like shit, and then they wonder why they get so many service complaints. And it's like, well, you 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 create a hostile environment, workplace. What do you think is going to happen? Exactly, and and this is what I this is what I teach my uh, teach my bartenders is there is first off, how many times have we stepped into a bar manager role unprepared? Like outside of like the big really great companies like Papacitos you know, that actually yeah. train management, that has a training program. How many of us have had to step up in the blink of an eye because the bar manager left? Yeah. It happens all the time. <laughs> you know, you see it and you're not prepared. You know, you, you don't know how to cost things. You don't know the technicalities. You know how to cost things out, how to negotiate uh, menus, how to, you know, stuff like that. But what really people don't pay attention to is how to manage people, how to be a leader. And that's why I tell them, like, there's enough managers in the world who need leadership. And attitude always reflects the leadership. The yep. lack of leadership you see in a lot of places, you see it when you walk in. You see the attitude of the staff. And so when you don't have that leadership in place, then there's no way you can truly be successful, in my honest opinion. Like, the really great, really great restaurant groups that you see popping up around the country, they have strong leadership that genuinely cares, that motivates, that is genuinely concerned about their employees. And, uh, you know, it's, 
it's kind of frustrating, you know, kind of frustrating to see that. So it is. We're here, we stress. It you is know, very. Yeah, it's very frustrating because it there is for people who want to do the right thing, owners and managers. Um, the structure of the industry doesn't make it easy, and it's one like it, it and it and it goes to me. I always think of two things: is one is in the leadership and taking care of your employees; the other one is sustainability in programs. It's, it's very difficult to do those two things in our industry, and I think, uh, I, like you, I believe it's definitely time for a change where we can do both of those things and still be profitable. Exactly. The and talent honestly, is there. Exactly. I'll be quite honest with you. Our the, the employee meals and stuff, if you were to stack it up against the sales we've had since we opened four weeks ago, it paid off for itself. It, it pays off being, being good. You know, like, it's just good business being a good person, being a good, like, being a good organization. Like, everyone's willing to support that brand that stands up for the business, you know, like, everyone's willing to support those small businesses that genuinely care about their product and about their people. It's just easy to give my money to them. Like, it's really easy for me to give my money to HGB. Right. You know? Yeah, like, you're right about it's that. It's so easy. Like, it's so easy for me to pay an extra hundred bucks on my grocery bill because I know they're paying their employees well. They stepped up during this COVID. They were, you know, they offered opportunities to, you know, Chris Shepard and Google and all these people to sell their stuff and keep these guys employed. And it, why not? Would, why wouldn't I spend my money? And I feel like this industry, like us, we're a little bit more conscious with my, our money because we've seen how bad it gets. You know, we see how, how one moment we're doing fine and the next we can be out in the streets not doing anything. And yeah. so... Yeah, we go. We experience extremes, you know, and and I think that that it's uh, yeah, I I still like I said like I believe that the the talent exists in the industry to be able to create these uh, structural changes of sustainability and being able to take care of employees. I mean, for instance, like you're talking about H E B, and and they've you know they definitely understand that because I remember also during uh, Harvey. I mean, they were the yeah. first ones to open up and be stocked up, you know, exactly. and, uh, and, and, and it does go a long way because they don't just do it in those moments. You see that it carries over, you know, to their normal, normal way of doing business. Exactly. And so I feel like this industry is very great consciously, you know, like you have these leaders like, you know, Bobby Heigl and these other companies that are pushing, pushing, pushing forward, you know, Bobby pays you know, health insurance, he pays top dollar for his talent. Like, who wouldn't want to go work for somebody like that? You feel me? Yeah. Like, and I know small businesses can't all do that. Don't, don't, you know, don't confuse me with if you don't do it, you're not cool. But at least that's your goal to get there. You know what I'm saying? Like, your goal is not to just, you know, make as much money so you can go travel and buy yourself a new Mercedes. It's, I want to make enough money so I can pay my employees. And there's a lot of small businesses that, I've heard people talk about their owners about they really want to, you know, make a little bit more money so they can pay insurance for their employees and they can provide benefits and stuff like that. And I feel like you're starting to see that with a lot of these new bars that are popping up. You know, I feel like Justin, we've talked a couple, and he's going to do something really great there. Two-Head is also, you know, taking care of their employees. And I feel like, you know, we're trending in the right direction with this new generation of bar owners that's popping up in Houston. Yeah, I... I, 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 I the, it, it's very you can tell the ownership types you know like 
you can tell people who come up, struggled, built it with their hands versus the dude that just pays it. And uh, it reflects on how that organization is run. Yeah. And I feel like yeah. that's why there's this new blood is so exciting. You know, this new blood, especially in the Houston bar scene, it's so, like, it's people that have come up. You know, people that have put in work, people who, you know, genuinely care about the industry instead of just trying to make a buck, you know? And so I'm excited, man. And so it, it was kind of frustrating to see these, this kind of, you know, I guess major obstacle that we had to overcome, you know, uh, luckily, you know, the smaller bars are surviving, you know, Johnny's, Laylil's, all these bars that we love going to are still there, and so that makes me genuinely happy, you know, Layla's about to open up nice. tomorrow or nice. Friday, and so, you know, it's exciting to see them survive this, because it would suck if we were losing these bars. We'll see what happens, man, we'll see what happens the next month. I don't think this is ending anytime soon, but there's nothing left to do it but to do it. So we'll respond to what comes our way when it comes. Have a good day, brother. All right, man, you take care, man. Good luck with uh, your spot, man. I really appreciate this interview with Greg because one of the things that stood out is how he uh, took charge during this time with COVID where people were out of uh, out of work. And some people were being denied their unemployment even though they were put out of work because of the shutdown. Anyhow, um, again, like I said, I really appreciate this conversation with uh, Greg. I wish him uh, all the success. The, the, the place is a nice, nice spot. If you haven't been there you need, and you're in Houston, you need to check it out. It is called uh, Monkey's Tell. Um, you can find them on IG. I'll put that on there, and I'll put the website on, on the comments section. Here's a concept that you have agreed to and you may or may not know what it is. This is something that we live under every day. This is something that happens when we go to work, uh, when we go to the grocery store, when uh, we are sitting at our home. And that is the concept of the social contract. This is this idea, this concept that People decide, when you look at, at, at the development of civilizations, you had groups of people, you had individuals that may pair up and they had a, a family, it's a family, so that was one unit. And then you had these, um, later on, uh, groups of people, so multiple families would come together and sort of pool their efforts to for survival. Then you had villages, and then you had clans, and then you had... Um, townships and then you have cities and during this development of growing from this individual or couple or single family unit to having multiple families putting an effort into creating an environment that was for survival and and, and later on for comfort <clears throat> is the social contract and the way that that works there's basically two moving parts that are fundamental to this and that is the group of people because in order to stay organized you sort of have to make decisions as a group and so you 
designate certain people to represent the group, right? Even in the family unit, you know, whether it's the mother or the father, usually not the children, would help not. But anyways, and so, and you, you get a group of, of families and you decide, okay, uh, this is how we're going to make uh, decisions because otherwise it's a clusterfuck, right? In, in societies and in, in cities, the way that we live now, we, we elect uh, uh, public officials. These public officials, we have known them uh, to be uh, politicians, right? And so there is the exchange. There, That is what you're doing. You, as a population, are giving power to the elected officials to represent your interest, now, the problem is, is whenever the politics comes in, and so you start to pander at one group versus the other. Now, normally, in a democracy, even in the, in a representative republic as where we are, <clears throat> is that, and the difference there, if in case you don't know, a democracy is whenever it's the rule of the majority without infringing on the rights of the minority. A uh, representative republic, it is... And in, in, in first, a republic is made up of laws. A republic is contract law. So it is a decree of law. That is one of the fundamental aspects of a republic, is that you create these laws and you live by those laws regardless. And it's supposed to apply to everyone the same. But we know they don't. And a democracy, fundamentally, is the majority once you reach a majority, well, that's what it is. But even in a democracy, it is the majority of the rule without infringing on the rights of the minority. Now, it doesn't matter how you look at this. Either democracy or republic. We are a democratic republic. <clears throat> the social contract has been breached. And it has been for a really long time. It is just now that we're starting to blatantly, overtly, disgustingly been made aware of it. Or, I, I, not, not, that's wrong. We may have been made aware of it a very long time. I mean, the, the, the disgusting uh, acts of the 1960s were enough. And, and even prior to that with uh, um, Jim Crow laws and prior to that with uh, slavery. So, and prior to that with you know, annihilating all the Indians to take over their land. The thing about it is, currently the social contract has been breached because people have given politicians power, government, the, the government, the governance, they have yielded power to it. And what they're supposed to do, it is to protect its citizens, its, its people. It's nation, and that's not happening because week after week, we keep seeing these videos and reports, people showing up, getting into a traffic stop, being unarmed without any uh, resisting arrest, and you, and you watch police escalate and initiate violence. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to play... In case uh, you didn't see, you didn't watch uh, the, the John Oliver show, he played this clip of this uh, lady, Kimberly Jones, talking, explaining 
she was basically talking about the, the this escalation from the protests versus the riots. But <clears throat> you can find that on YouTube. Kimberly Jones, um, social contract. And um, she has explained what oppression is to the T in, in the, the most clear and elegant manner I've ever heard it. And when I say elegant, it is because it is precise and without a doubt reality. I think that as long as we're focusing on the what, we're not focusing on the why, and that's my issue with that. As long as we're focusing on what they're doing, we're not focusing on why they're doing. And some people are like, well, those aren't people who are legitimately angry about what's happening. Those are people who just want to get stuff. Okay, well then, let's go with that. Let's say that's what it is. Let's ask ourselves why in this country in 2020, the financial gap between poor blacks and the rest of the world is at such a distance that people feel like their only hope and only opportunity to get some of the things that we flaunt and flash in front of them all the time is to walk through a broken glass window and get it. That they are so hopeless that getting that necklace, getting that TV, getting that change, getting that bed, getting that phone, whatever it is that they're going to get is that in that moment when the riots happen and if they present an opportunity of looting, that's their only opportunity to get it. We need to be questioning that why. Why are people that poor? Why are people that broke? Why are people that that food insecure, that clothing insecure, that they feel like they're only shot, that they are shooting their shot by walking through a broken glass window to get what they need. And then people want to talk about, well, there's plenty of people who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and got it on their own. Why can't they do that? Let me explain to you something about economics in America. And I'm so glad that as a child, I got an opportunity to spend time at PUSH where they taught me this, is that we must never forget that economics was the reason that black people were brought to this country. We came to do the agricultural work in the South and the textile work in the North. Do you understand that? That's what we came to do. We came to do the agricultural work in the South and the textile work in the North. Now, if I right now, if I right now decided that I wanted to play Monopoly with you, and for 400 rounds of playing Monopoly, I didn't allow you to have any money, I didn't allow you to have anything on the board, I didn't allow for you to have anything, and then we played another 50 rounds of Monopoly, and everything that you gained and you earned while you were playing that round of Monopoly was taken from you. That was Tulsa, that was Rosewood. There are those are places where we built black economic wealth, where we were self-sufficient, where we owned our stores, where we owned our property, and they burned them to the ground. So that's 450 years. So for 400 rounds of Monopoly, you don't get to play at all. Not only do you not get to play, you have to play on the behalf of the person that you're playing against. You have to play and make money and earn wealth for them, and then you have to turn it over to them. So then for 50 years, you finally get a little bit and you're allowed to play. And every time that they don't like the way that you're playing or that you're catching up or that you're doing something to be self-sufficient, they burn your game. They burn your cards. They burn your Monopoly money. And then finally at the release and the onset of that, they allow you to play and they say, okay, now you catch up. Now at this point, the only way you're going to catch up in the game is if the person shares the wealth, correct? But what if every time you share the wealth, then there's psychological warfare against you to say, oh, you're an equal opportunity higher.
So if I played 400 rounds of Monopoly with you and I had to play and give you every dime that I made, and then for 50 years, every time that I played, I, if you didn't like what I did, you got to burn it like they did in Tulsa and like they did in Rosewood, how can you win? How can you win? You can't win. The game is fixed. So when they say, why do you burn down the community? Why do you burn down your own neighborhood? It's not ours. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. There is, Trevor Noah said it so beautifully last night. There's a social contract that we all have, that if you steal or if I steal, then the person who is the authority comes in and they fix the situation. But the person who fixes the situation is killing us. So the social contract is broken. And if the social contract is broken, why the fuck do I give a shit about burning the fucking football hall of fame, about burning a fucking target? You broke the contract when you killed us in the streets and didn't give a fuck. You broke the contract when for 400 years we played your game and built your wealth. You broke the contract when we built our wealth again on our own by our bootstraps in Tulsa and you dropped bombs on us. When we built it in Rosewood and you came in and you slaughtered us. You broke the contract, so fuck your target. Fuck your Hall of Fame. As far as I'm concerned, they could burn this bitch to the ground. And it still wouldn't be enough. And they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge.